Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, reading through verse 1 through to verse 10. Let us hear the word of God. And you were dead in trespasses, in the trespasses and sins in the which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Oh, this isn't a Baptist church, I guess. They don't say good morning. Um, I'm really privileged to be here with you this morning. It's, uh, it's always a joy to come here because I know a couple of things. I know that Christ is going to be exalted. I know that the Word of God is going to be uh, shared. I know that uh, you guys are going to be listening and uh, asking God by His Spirit to apply what you hear from the Word into your lives. And, and that there is no greater joy for uh, someone who shares the Word to know that. So thanks uh, for letting me come. So a little over 20 years ago, I was sitting on a little wooden bench in a, uh, a, a church in a Hindu neighborhood on the island of Trinidad. Now, if, if you're like many people who haven't done Caribbean history, you say a little Hindu neighborhood in the island of Trinidad, that doesn't seem to, to, you know, to mix. But if you think of the, the history of Trinidad, uh, you, you realize that there had always been on that island, about seven miles off of the coast of uh, Venezuela, the Caribe people. And um, about the, oh, the end of the 1400s, uh, Columbus came over and claimed the land for Spain. Uh, through the coming centuries, uh, Span- it was under Spanish control and French control and Dutch control and ultimately English control. And as the people who had been controlling that island saw that the, the possibility of exploiting the natural, uh, you know, uh, possibility of growing things, you know, growing sugar cane or cocoa, they said, we need to import people to do that labor. So from Africa, they imported a lot of slaves, uh, a lot from North Africa. And then from India, they imported indentured servants. And over the years, those groups have grown up. And so on the island of Trinidad, there was about a third, which, which was um, Muslim uh, from Africa, a third was Hindu from the Indian subcontinent, and a third was eh, nominally Christian, somewhat animist, and sometimes both, you know. So I was in this, this Hindu neighborhood, um, and I was sitting on the bench on a Friday afternoon uh, after a week-long program, 
uh, where we had invited some children to come and to hear uh, the, the story of Jesus. And so as I sat there, I was sitting because I had injured my leg uh, playing basketball, which is my injury of choice and has been for you know, 65 years. So I was sitting on this bench and uh, just kind of watching things happen. And a young girl came and sat next to me. Her name was Shenny. Now, I had met Shenny early in the week because we had gone to a number of uh, homes to invite people to come. And I remember very distinctly, one, we came to the edge, and, and in that culture, you don't walk onto somebody's property. You go to the edge of the property, and you yell in, hello, good afternoon, and if somebody wants to speak with you, they come out to the edge of the property, and they greet you. So we did. We, hello, and I, I looked at this hut, shack, that looked like it should not be inhabited, but was, and we yelled in, hello, and as a, a, a woman came out, she then called a group of children. There was about five of them. And she called them to come out with her. And as she walked out, I could tell that they were, they were Hindu because there were prayer flags on the side of the, the property. And um, so she walked out. And not knowing at the time the, the whole sense of karma and reincarnation and why she would say this, I was shocked when she started walking toward me, realizing that I was different than everybody else. Um, and she looked at me, and she looked at this young girl, and she said to her in a stage whisper that I could hear as she walked, she said, look at him, he's clean and white and rich, and you are dark and dirty and poor. And I thought to myself, oh, that's not how I want her to see herself. And what I wanted to do was drop on my knees and grab this young girl and hug her and say, no, you are created in the image of God and you are beautiful. You are exactly as he made you and he loves you with an everlasting love. And I wanted to do that, but in that culture it was totally unacceptable. And in your culture it would be a little creepy anyway, right? So what I did is I said, God, please bring her out to the, to the meeting so she can hear about you. And in fact, he did. And she showed up. And so through the week, she listened to the story of who Jesus was and what he had done. And then she came and she sat next to me on this bench. And she handed me something. It was this. It's a little Christmas card. The front edge cut out. And she handed it to me as a gift. And I said, thank you. I said, what is this? She says, it's a Christmas card. I went, oh, Christmas. Do you know what Christmas is? And her face sunk. And, and, and she, I could tell she was searching for meaning and it didn't. And she, she said, no. And so I turned it around and right there, I wrote Christmas on there, Christmas, all capital letters. And I showed it to her. I said, does it make sense now? And she looked at it and she, and then I underlined Christ and I handed it back to her and the eyes opened up and the light went on. And she said, that, that's Jesus. That's who we've been talking about this week. And in a conversation for a few minutes later, I asked her, I said, Shenny, has anybody ever told you about Jesus? She said, no, I've never heard of him in my whole life until this week. And I've carried this card with me every day since that day in my Bible to remind myself that all over this world there are shenies, beautiful, wonderful, created in the image of God who have never heard 
the message of Jesus. And I look at something like that and I go, wait, wait a second. Here's somebody who has never heard the message. And then I, I, I turn to my Bible and I see the Apostle Paul and I see him say, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to get to God and it's Jesus and she's never heard of him. And then I read Peter and he says that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. She says, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among or under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no other way. But she didn't know. And I look at the Apostle John and he says, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the, the son of the, God's one and only son. And, and I think, well, that's, that's really narrow. That's, that's really, but then Jesus comes and he says, there, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And so I think, wow, what am I going to do with this? What, where is this cognitive dissonance between the fact that I know that, that Jesus is the only way to a relationship with the Father, and I know that there are lots of people who don't know him and don't even know about him? And if you don't trust Peter, Paul, or John, or Jesus, I figured you'd trust a Scottish preacher, right? So Alistair Begg says this. He says, these statements are direct, unequivocal, and unapologetic. They were in their day as much as in our own viewed with cynicism and distaste. But the apostles became convinced of the truth that Jesus had risen from the dead and the reality that he was God made in flesh and the implication was unavoidable. There is no other Savior because there is no other person who is qualified to save. I say there's no other Savior, but there's, there's so many people who haven't heard of him. And then I go to a place called the Joshua Project, which is a, uh, the premier Christian demographical uh, website, right? And I see a chart like this. And you may not be able to read it, but I'll tell you what it says. That top line talks about the, well, the whole chart talks about the little over 8 billion people that are in the world today. And that top line is what they call unreached, which is basically defined as there's less than 2% evangelical Christians in there, and they have little or no opportunity to hear the good news in a language, in a culture, in a location to which they could logically make a response in faith. And so <clears throat> that group of people in that red line is 42% of that world. That's 3.4 billion people. And within that group is a group they call the frontier group, where it's 0.01% Christians in their group and literally no chance to hear the gospel in their life. People like Shenny. And then I realized in my world that, because <laughs> I deal with missions, that 80% of, of Christian spending in the United States is spent on the blue, or the green lines in the bottom. That's the partially and significantly reached group. Roughly 3% of all Christian giving is, is given to reach the 42% who are unreached. And, 
and I say, God, what do I do with this? That what, how do I live with this? What, what should my attitude be toward this? Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm confronted by my, my personal experiences and my biblical exegesis and my demographical exp- ex- examinations, and I say, how do I handle this? And so then I go to my Bible again, and I read in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then how can they call, though, if, on someone whom they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in someone in whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless somebody goes and preaches to them? And so I ask these questions, and I want to ask and answer them with you this morning. Why should I care? Why should I, sitting in Aberdeen, care that there are so many people living, dying, and perishing without ever hearing the, the message that will save them. Why should I care? And then if I end up caring, what should I do? Okay? Simple questions. So let's kind of jump into that. Now, now here's, here's the deal. I could go to a lot of places to, to, to do this, right? I could go to Matthew 28, and we've all heard messages where Jesus says, uh, you know, for all authority is given into me, so therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And lo, or surely, depending on which way you want, and lo, I am with you always. I could do that. We could talk about the reality of hell. We could talk about the um, the honor of being God's ambassador. We could talk about the, uh, the the responsibility of being a watchman. We could talk about all kinds of things. But what I want to do is not take you to a place where we could talk about something you might have heard. <laughs> I want to go somewhere you have likely not gone. All right? So I don't want to go to a, a well-known passage of the Old Testament or New Testament. I want to go to an obscure passage in the Old Testament. All right? So you better start looking at your Bible now to get to it. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. Okay? 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to cover verses 20 through actually chapter 7, verse 9. All right? So, while you're turning there, let's look at a little context, because um, you may have heard it said that a, a text without context is just a con. All right? So, I don't want to do that. Let's look at the context. In verse uh, 24, we start the context. It says this, Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Okay. So we got Ben-Hadad, he's a king of Syria or of Aram, and he's laying siege to Samaria where the king of Israel ruled. Now in that day, about eight centuries before Christ, there were two basic strategies of military conquest if you came upon a city. You could go for the full frontal attack, which in, in which basically the, 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 the army would come up, they would take a look at the city, they would say, okay, Let's try to get in, and they would get the best angle, and they would attack, right? Now, in reality, one of the problems with that is that um, the, the uh, most cities in that day had a well-developed defense mechanism called a wall. Uh, the walls that they would build over larger cities were usually several stories high. They were very wide, wide enough to uh, have much of the defending army on the top of them. And so if, if you, you know, if you had no time, if you had to get on to the next city to conquer, or if you were afraid that, you know, reinforcements would come, you would do the full frontal attack. But if you had time, 
uh, you would say, you know what, I don't want to pay the cost of a full frontal attack because, you know, to go full frontal, you had to climb the walls. And by the way, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, you, you remember when it talks about uh, do not give Satan a foothold? I think that's the kind of the picture is that when, when somebody is coming to attack, they, they want to climb the wall. They need places to put their feet. And so don't give the devil a foothold in, in, in your life or in the life of the church, he, Paul says. Now, but back to Kings. So, uh, you know, there was going to be an expected cost because when you were trying to get that foothold and climb up to the top of the, and, and go over the top, the, the people inside the city were understandably less than hospitable, right? They would throw hot, heavy objects, they would shoot sharp objects, they would pour hot liquids on the soldiers who were trying to scale the wall. Rather rude, but understandable. So if you want a kind of an epic uh, visual of this, uh, those of you who have seen um, the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep in the Two Towers, you go look it up sometime, Google it. Um, Massive, massive amount of uh, damage when, when you try that thing. So, um, so if they looked at it, they said, okay, the cost-benefit analysis, uh, too much cost to go full frontal. What am I going to do? They would do a siege. All right? Now, siege basically was you would bring your army up, you would surround the city, and then you would... Um, you know, basically, uh, many times, because cities were built on waterways, they would divert the water around the city, and they would surround it. And they would say, okay, listen, we're going to cut off all entry and all exit. They're going to cut off all the life-giving water. We're going to take all the food. You know, when you finished eating in there, you're not going to have any more. The king of the would send a message to the king in the city and say, hey, listen, we're going to be hanging out here. we got plenty of food. we got plenty of water. Uh, we got everything we need out here. We'll be hanging out. Uh, let us know when you want to surrender and we'll be waiting for you. And that's what they did. And that's basically what we find in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. And what would happen is what was designed to happen, the siege would lead to a famine. And that's what happened here in verse 25. We read, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, what in the world does that mean? The famine got worse and worse and worse to the point where they were eating donkey heads. And the market price for donkey heads was going up. Now, the next phrase is, is scholars say that uh, the next phrase is very hard to translate, but this cab of seed pods, um, uh, your Bible may have a different translation. I'll say it delicately. Uh, dove dung or pigeon poo. Now, I have to tell you, I've been to over 60 countries of the world. I've uh, traveled in very rural spots. I have been hungry in all kinds of places. Uh, never to my knowledge have I ever eaten a donkey head um, or pigeon droppings. And so you look at that and you go, you know, by the way, I, I have eaten some things that were, were amazing um, and amazingly unamazing. <laughs> And I learned a prayer years ago uh, at uh, someone who spoke at the Urbana Mission Conference, which is a mission conference in, in Illinois, in Pennsylvania, or in the United States. And, and uh, this was the prayer when I get something like that. It's, Lord, I'll eat it all up if you'll keep it all down. So, and so far it's worked. It's worked. So, um, you, the, the residents of Samaria were, were eating unimaginable things, and you think to yourself, oh, donkey, you know, pigeon, ugh. could it get worse? 
Could it possibly get worse? And the answer is yes, it gets much worse. Verse 26 says, The king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried to him, Help me, my lord the king. The king replied, If the lord does not help you, where am I going to get help from? From the threshing floor? Implying there's no help there. Wine press? Nothing there. So he asks her, Okay, what's the matter? So we, we meet a woman who um, is coming to the king, walking, uh, he's walking on the top of the wall. He's probably looking outside the wall at the, 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 the arrayed armies. He's looking inside the wall at the famine that's there. And he's thinking, I got no help for you. What am I going to do? And then, uh, then he asks her, okay, so verse uh, 26 or 28, 29, he says, okay, um, what's, what's going on? What's wrong? Verse 28, uh, she answered him, This woman said to me, Give up your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him, and the next day I said to her, Give up your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden him. Do you see the gravity of the famine there? She says, listen, king, I, you know, we are starving so badly that we made a contract, we made a covenant, we made an agreement, uh, we signed the paperwork yesterday, a couple days ago, that we're going to eat my son, and then we're going to eat hers, and she hid her son. She's in breach of contract, I want you to rule between us. They had cannibalized one son, and they were looking to do another. Can you imagine how awful... A situation must be to decide that we would sacrifice our children for our own appetites, our own survival? You probably can. And so that's the context in which we're introduced to, to four men in chapter 7. And I told you that context in order to get to this section. In chapter 7 and verse 3, we meet four men. It says this, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance to the city gate. Right? We, we meet four men. They were suffering from a serious deprivation, food and drink, and they were ser- suffering from a serious disease, leprosy. Uh, they were waiting outside the city gate because uh, leprosy at the time was not only an incurable disease, it was a progressive disease, it was a, 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 you know, a highly transmissible disease, and it was a quarantining disease. In fact, uh, if you read back in Leviticus chapter 13, we read this. You know, someone who has had leprosy, was required to wear torn clothes, keep their hair unkempt, uh, cover their lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. They must live alone outside the camp. It kind of describes people, I think, in like 2020, 2021, kind of unkempt, covering their face. And but Sorry, too soon? All right. So these men with leprosy are stuck outside the camp. They couldn't go into the camp because of the law and because of the famine. They couldn't go outside the camp because of the armies and the, the threats there. They stay, they just park themselves at the gate of the camp, um, and then their parking permit expired. Verse 3, 4 says, They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we go into the city, the famine is there. We're going to die. If we stay here, we're going to die. Uh, let's go out to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we, we die. We die, we die. They realistically had determined their, determined their dilemma. They, they said if we stay here, we die. If we go there, we die. We go out there, we'll probably die. But they may fill us before they kill us. And so let's take a chance. And that's what they did. 
they made a courageous decision. To be saved, they must make a move. They must change something. They decided to go out to the army, and that's what they did. And look what happened. Verse 5. At dusk, they got up and went out to the camp of the Arameans, and when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and great armies. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and they fled at dusk and they abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. Oh good, more donkeys. They left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. Do you see what just happened? Moments before, these men were hopeless and they were helpless. They, they sat at the gate of the city realizing that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. They were dead if they stayed there. They were dead if they went in. They were dead if they went out. They were just hopeless. But then they made a choice. They moved. And they found out that when they moved, God had done a miracle. God confounded the mind of the Aramean armies and believing that they were under attack... They raced off, leaving everything that they had to be found by the four despairing lepers. And they got there in the next verse, in verse 7 and 8, it says this, The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents. They ate and they drank and they took silver and gold and clothes and they went off and they hid them. And then they returned and entered another tent and they went back and took some things from there and they went off and they hid it also. See, here's these four guys. Moments before, they were helpless, they were hopeless, they were dead if they stayed, dead if they went, dead if they did, no matter, dead if they did something, dead if they did nothing, unless God intervened, they were cooked. But God intervened in a miracle. And because of that miracle, in the blink of an eye, they received blessing upon blessing upon blessing. They had all the food they could ever want or need or more. They had all the drink they could ever want or need or more. They, they had all the clothes they could want or need or more. They had, they had all of the wealth they could want or need or more. And they gorged themselves on the foodstuffs. They dressed themselves in red carpet-worthy attire. They stuffed their pockets with riches. They were, then they thought of the future. They said, hey, wait a second, we gotta lay up something for the future. We gotta get our retirement plan funded. We gotta look some, for some diversity and liquidity in our future. So, so they grabbed stuff. And because it was too dark, they couldn't build barns, uh, you know, greater barns. So they took them and they went out in the fields and up into the hills and they hid them in caves and made sure that they were set for the future. They had everything they ever imagined for now and the future, not because of their own work, not because of their own wit, not because of their own wisdom but because of the unmerited miracle of God. And then something happened. And basically I've told you this whole story to get to this next verse. Something happens that should lay hold of our hearts faster than those guys laid hold of the loot. It says this, They said to each other then, We're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait till daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the palace. They said, we are not doing right. They came to their senses. Suddenly, in the blissful moment, while observing and enjoying the incredible blessings that God had bestowed on them, they realized that the blessings they enjoyed in abundance were available to those who were back in the city as well, but the people in the city 
were unreached with the good news that would save them. The people in the city were dying without ever hearing the message of salvation that was available to them. The men knew that it was just not right to withhold the message that would save from the multitude who would not survive. Let me say that again. It's just not right to withhold the message that will save from the multitude who will not survive. So it doesn't take a literary scholar uh, with a minor in interpretation of, of, of stories to see the parallel between the four men and, and those of us who are Christians, does it? We who are believers who have stepped over the line of faith in Jesus Christ and taken us from, from death to life, from darkness to light, we've received blessings unimaginable. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We read it earlier. We could do nothing to save ourselves. We were dead if we stayed where we were. We were dead if we went somewhere. We were dead if we went nowhere. We were dead if we did nothing. We were dead if we tried something. It should not surprise you that the Apostle Paul said it better than I, and we read it earlier. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live. But then in that Ephesians 2 passage in verse 4, it says, but. But. It's probably my favorite word in the Bible. This was true, but. Something else is true now. Because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we're dead in transgressions, by grace we've been saved. God did a miracle on the cross that was infinitely more miraculous than confusing Arameans or providing wealth and donkey heads. Christ died for us, and by faith we can come into a relationship with him. And in that moment, we're saved and with salvation showered, not with just physical stuff and riches and horses, but with incredible spiritual blessings. Forgiveness of all of our sins. Eternal life promised to us with Christ in heaven. The church is a family here on earth. The Bible to guide us. The Holy Spirit to live inside us. Total reconciliation with God and a relationship with Him. And so, so, so much more. And yet, you know what I see so often in our world? I don't know if it's true here. I see people all around the world who enjoy, just like the lepers of Second Kings, who enjoy the blessings they have. They've accepted those blessings, not on their own wit and their own wisdom and their own work. They've accepted those blessings. They've absorbed those blessings. They enjoyed those blessings and understood that those blessings are theirs for eternity and their future is secure. And yet, for any number of reasons... They don't seem to remember that there's a whole group of people who have never heard the message that will save. There are a whole group of people who are in darkness and hopelessness. Never heard of that salvation that's been freely and bountifully and abundantly available to every one of us. Simply for faith asking. I guess I should take a parenthesis right now because in a group this size, I don't know where you're at spiritually. What I want to say is if you've never taken the, 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 
just a courageous act to leave where you are, to change your mind about where you are, and to say, I need to trust something different because I'm, I'm, I know the Bible says I'm dead if I stay here. I'm dead if I go. I, I'm, I don't know. I can't do anything. If you've never come to the point where you've said, hey, you know what, I realize that there is a miracle that God performed that was not my own wit, not my own wisdom, not my own work, but his work on the cross, and he offers me eternal life as a free gift simply by believing in him. If you've never done that, I would encourage you this morning because he's offering that to you. So then I go back to the... uh, the question. There are many of us, though, who have experienced God's miraculous salvation. So I say, okay, so why should I care? I should care because it's the right thing to do. Just like the, the lepers. If we absorb all these blessings and ignore those who have never heard that their blessings are available to them, we are not doing right. It's the right thing to do. Now, if you need more reasons as to why we should care and what we should, what we should do about it, um, I wrote a book, strangely enough, called Reasons. All right? And uh, there's copies of it downstairs. Uh, it would be, be honored me if you'd take a copy for free. Uh, just take a look at it. Uh, if you want to order more, you can scan that thing. Um, but... Um, it would be a great honor if you would, you would read that and just ask God, Lord, if these things are true, what do you want me to do about it? I also wrote a book called Reachable. It's downstairs. If you want a copy of it, please take it and read it. It's stories of what God's doing. So back to that question. What, what should I do? If I'm convinced that, that this is true, if I, that I should care, what should I do about it? Well, Here's why I admit as a, as a preacher that I don't quite know what God wants you to do. I often have a hard enough time figuring out what God wants me to do. But I know he wants you to do something. And here's what I would suggest. Sit down long enough and think hard enough and pray deep enough and ask God, God, what do you want me to do about these things? What do you want me to do about the fact that there are 3.4 billion people who have never heard about Jesus in a way to which they could logically respond in faith? What do you want me to do about that? So while I don't know particularly what God wants you to do, I do know what God wants me to do. And um, part of that is... Willie mentioned was to start a group called Worldlink a little almost 22 years ago now. And I thank you all for being a part of this whole thing and uh, supporting the vision that God has given to reach people who are unreached with the good news. Uh, The vision of Worldlink is to, just as it says right here, soon to come, there he is, you know, to see God's good news shared with every unreached person transforming lives and communities. That's what I, I think when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and the, the, the blessings come upon them, that their, their lives are going to be transformed and their communities are transformed. There's an inescapable um, 
you know, downstream consequence of somebody coming to a transforming faith in their own life, it's going to transform people around them. So that's what we really want to see. We, that's our vision of what we want to see. Now, lots of people are working toward that. Our part in that is pretty small. Our mission is to share God's good news and power indigenous missionaries to share God's tangible love and the good news of Jesus with the world's least reached people. And thanks for what you've been doing. By, by God's grace, um, over the last years we've grown up, we, we now have 1,318 missionary partners in 49 countries. And all by God's power and grace uh, in the last year, you know, a little over 1.2 million people have heard the good news and almost 100,000 have responded. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing privilege and joy to be a part of that. You say, well, what does that look like in real life? Well, let me introduce you to a few people in the few minutes we have left. Here's a, a guy named Nam. Um, he's on the far left. Unless you say, that camera is not working very well, we've blurred the face, all right? Um, he's in uh, the northern mountains of Vietnam, and he's working with people who have never heard of Jesus. And let me tell you what he wrote in a report recently. I'm going to pull it up here. If modern miracles of science work, this is going to work. Yes, I can get to it. All right. So I'm going to spin it. So this is, this is what he said. Um, he says, we've performed outreach among, well, he mentions two tribes. I'm not going to mention because that will identify him, and I don't want to do that. Um, but not, not because I don't trust you, but because there are dangers involved in that, and I think you know that. So if you want to know particularly, come up and see me afterwards. Um, he says, we evangelized where no one has heard of Jesus before or believed in God. We spent time in prayer because the people are hard-hearted. Then afterwards he wrote, I am focusing on teaching the new believers about baptism. They need care to be taught about God and how to grow in their faith. So please pray for our ministry and blah, blah. So this is one of our partners who's working with people who literally have never heard of the name of Jesus. And in his own country, he has come to faith and he's going back in to say, I want to bring the good news to them. So let's, let's move a little bit to the, to the west and let's get closer to you guys and, and we'll go to uh, Bhutan. And, uh, this is a group of, uh, young people in Bhutan that, that I'm just going to call him B is working with. Um, so Bhutan is a, is a country that, that is 99 point, no, 98.3% unreached. Um, there are uh, 58 uh, people groups in Bhutan, and 57 of them are considered unreached. The number of evangelicals, according to the websites, uh, is unknown. Well, you're about to know something that they don't, because here's a group of young Christians that have been reached by B. And he, he says this. He says, uh, it's wonderful to, well, to hear from us. Uh, we're, we were corresponding. He says, these are all high secondary and college students They've committed their lives to serve God in their own respect in schools and colleges, and their long-term commitment is to come out as full-time missionaries. 
after they are done with their education, we will closely, we will closely do the follow-up work. We'll keep it connected with them and want to supply resources to them like Bibles because they can't get them. We, we, they, he gets to smuggle them in, by the way. Uh, some great stories on that. I was with him with B in Thailand uh, earlier in the year. Um, we cannot get into these institutions, but we have commissioned them and sent them. Um, he says, uh, we want to appoint missionaries in three regions now in Bhutan. We have found them. We have closely working, we're closely working with them, training and discipling them and their call. Uh, we want to see them serving God full time in those regions. It will be possible. Uh, we talked about our sponsorship, blah, blah, blah. Um, he says, we are desperate to see souls saved, and yet we are limited in many ways. We want to be prepared, a ready people, to answer the call and go beyond. We are in a place of destiny-defining moments for countless numbers of souls and generations to come in this nation. We could do and want to do much more. The stakes are high. The ground is harsh reality and desperate. There is growing urgency. And so we are going to be adding some missionaries there. Swing farther over, and uh, tomorrow, uh, in a few hours, actually, Nate and I are going to hop on a plane, and tomorrow we will be in, in Ethiopia. And one of our, uh, our partners that we'll be with is working with a tribe uh, called the Afar tribe, and this is uh, one of their villages. The Afar are 90, uh, they're 1.01% evangelical Christians. They, they spread across three uh, countries, but most of them are in Ethiopia. And, uh, and so he, he writes and he says this, I'm writing from the Afar region of Ethiopia. Uh, a few days ago, we divided ourselves uh, for uh, evangelism and went to different ways into this, I won't tell you the city. In one day, uh, 14 Afar listened to the gospel for the very first time, and two gave their lives to Jesus, while three of them asked for some time to think about the gospel. One of the two is currently being discipled by one of the missionaries we are leaving behind in Afar. His life is changing, and he's loving the Discovery Bible study every evening. So that's what we're doing as a part of this. We're saying, you know what, there are brothers and sisters of ours, indigenous nationals who live in their own countries, who can serve their own countries, who can reach places that I can't go as a Westerner, and we're lifting them up and encouraging them and supplying them and providing training and support and special projects so that they can do that. And it is a joy to do that. If you want to learn a little more about that, those two books will tell you, or you can talk to us afterwards. But I want to say to you guys, thank you. Um, I thank God for you and for your part in making this happen. Because if it wasn't for people like you who were praying, who were giving, who were encouraging, um, none of this would be going on. So let me end where, uh, where we kind of started. It's not right to withhold the message that will save from the multitude who won't survive. We have so incredibly much. God has granted us opportunities and blessings beyond our wildest imagination, so I would encourage you, ask God, what is it you want me to do to reach those who have never heard? 
So I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Um, I'm going to end the beginning of my ending prayer is going to be a prayer from somebody else. I usually don't pray other people's prayers, although I do it in song, which is strange. And I'll sing somebody else's prayer, but I usually don't say someone else's prayer. I'm inconsistent, all right? But would you pray with me? And I'm going to pray a prayer that Augustine wrote, and then we'll, we'll finish. O oh Lord, our Savior, you have warned us that you will require much of those to whom much is given. Grant that we whose lot is cast in so goodly a heritage may strive together the more abundantly to extend to others what we have so richly enjoyed. And as we have entered into the labors of other people, so to labor that in their turn other people may enter into ours to the fulfillment of your holy will. Father, like the lepers, we have been showered with such incredible blessing. Thank you for that. For those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we celebrate what you've given so freely, so undeservedly, but only by your grace. And Father, I just pray that you'll help each of us who sit in this room, each who hear it later, to ask seriously and listen for your answer as to what you want us to do to reach those who have never heard. I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.